Welcome to Talk Design Show, where creatives have conversations. I'm Adrian Ramsey, your host, and having lived a life of design myself, I wanted to share with you the creatives that inspire me and in turn may inspire you. Thank you for listening and please enjoy. My guest on Talk Design today is Jeff Krieger. Jeff runs a company called Krieger & Associates based in Philadelphia. Now, they've been around a while. They do some beautiful work, stunning architectural work. And Jeff, basically, I could go on and on about you being a lecturer, you know, all these things. But let's just flesh that out as we go. What I'd like to do is say welcome to the show. Thank you, Adrian. It's great to be here. Thank you for making the time, man. I know you've got a long list of accolades, but let's jump back from those. And just what is it that, you know, first ever captured you or what was the point you knew that you were going to be an architect, that you were going to sell your soul to this uh, profession? <laughs> right. So uh, I'll try to get through this quickly, but my origin story might be a little different than others that you've spoken with. I was convinced the time I graduated from high school that I was going to be a doctor. Right. Here you are. <laughs> and here I am. And that changed after I graduated from high school the summer before I entered college, I took a course in introduction to architecture at the local university, Carnegie Mellon, uh, because I couldn't get a summer job and my parents were not going to let me sit around the house all summer long. So you had to fill the time. <laughs> yeah. So I, I had an interest in architecture. Uh, I took this course and I was just fascinated by it. I wasn't automatically excellent at it, but it spurred in me this challenge. Yeah. That this was something that I really wanted to learn how to do to the best of my ability. And when I started in, you know, bio major, yeah. uh, and I took introductory bio. And then in the spring, I took an introduction to modern architecture course, which uh, our architectural history course which I think I had to get special permission to enter as a freshman, but somehow we convinced the professor to let us in. Yeah. And, and that, that was just this eye-opening experience for me. And when it came time the end of freshman year to pick classes, I signed up for our, my first studio the following year. And that was the last I saw of the natural sciences. Yeah, wow. Wow, how incredible. So you could have very easily been sitting here as a doctor now had you made got a summer job, you know, like in the local 7-Eleven or pulling gas or washing cars or right. what a collision of, you know, like what a collision of um, happenstance that makes you change your whole yeah. journey. It, it really did. And I had worked in a hospital the previous summer. So all right. So you knew what you knew what you were giving up, maybe. Mm-hmm. With it. Any architects in your family? Any, uh, like, well, no. why the interest anyway? So I trace this back to the fact that my father was a reasonably successful businessman who had no aesthetic sensibilities. <laughs> uh, and my mother was a very prolific artist who changed media about every 10 years. 
So yeah, wow. she, she could draw figures and landscapes just very exacting, very beautifully. She was an oil painter, then she became a lithographer, then she became a ceramicist, and on and on and on. So they were um, the opposites attract, weren't they then? Exactly. Like really, really. Right? Yeah. And as the firstborn, I am very much split right down the middle between hmm. the two of the, their lifelong interests. So architecture is that one profession where you can be an artist and a business person simultaneously. I was about to say, it's probably the best thing. You know, that was what I was going to interrupt with is probably such a good thing um, because, you know, so many architects actually struggle to do the business side of the architecture thing um, as well as the creative side. You know, you, you, the bent is either one side or the other and to be in the middle like that and or to have both both abilities, you know, both hemispheres of your brain almost working. Um, that's, yeah, it was probably a, a wonderful, a wonderful outcome. Um, you were saying your mother was a, a, an artist and so she would change every, every 10 years or so she would sort of like step it into a new zone. Um, yeah. Any parallels there with your, um, with your practice? Uh, I would say I, I don't get bored as easily perhaps as she did um, or it, it might not have been boredom. It may have been that she mastered a very, a technique and decided it was time to move on. Whereas I, I don't feel like I've ever mastered the complexity of architecture. Well, you know, that's another really interesting point, isn't it? Because they say, you know, 10,000 hours is mastery. Um, mm -hmm. And you ask anybody who's done 10,000 hours and they'd say, I'm just starting to learn this stuff. Um, but you know the difference between that discipline, the first 10 years of, say, doing architecture, and then the next 10 years, and then the following 10 years. And yes, you still learn every day. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's like an involvement. You know, you, you're sort of peeling an onion back and finding even more onion and more onion and more onion. Um, so it's always interesting. I think the other thing was maybe the difference between being an artist. So my dad is a fine artist and he was a commercial artist. As a commercial artist, you're probably more aligned to being a uh, like an architect or a designer where you're actually producing work for someone, where often as an artist you're producing work eh, for the whim of it, to do something beautiful, you know. Right. No, I, yeah, I completely agree. And I'm still peeling the onion as opposed to setting aside the onion and picking up the tomato. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, tell me, like, like, so with the practice, you're a, you've got associates as well. Tell me what that looks like. Like, what's the what's your business look like? And tell me about your the sort of projects that you love to do. Um, obviously, we're going to post all your socials and all that kind of stuff on here, but. Um, mm -hmm. Give us sort of a snapshot of why that styling and why that sort of aesthetic versus whatever else it could be and, and how you keep yourselves in line and your customers in line. Hmm. So, uh, you know, the firm has evolved somewhat over the years. Uh, one thing that is a hallmark of what we do is we, we're very collaborative with our clients and our builders and often with consultants and other, even other architects. So we went through a phase 
after I started my firm where we, we did quite a few collaborations with other, other firms. We actually worked with Frank Gehry on a new science library at Princeton University. We worked on a lead platinum uh, high school for autistic children with a, another local architect. And we really enjoyed those collaborations because it was an opportunity for us to work on larger scale institutional projects. Um, but for a variety of reasons, some of those things sort of died off and it's really not a variety of reasons. I would say it was the great recession. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, and since then we have focused more on custom residential work. We're very good at it. There's a, a lot of it in this vicinity and we, we enjoy the faster turnaround time and the more intimate relationship that we can have with clients and builders. Um, so most of our, we live in an area that is very highly developed, has a lot of incredibly beautiful older homes from the 1860s, basically to the Great Depression in 1930. Yeah, 1929, 1930, so, right. Yeah, so, so a lot of our work is taking those old estate homes and inverting them because they were originally designed with servants, living yeah. servants. Yeah. And uh, the kitchen was off limits. Yeah, sure. And you didn't go there. They bought it to you. Yeah. Right. And the formal dining room was where you entertained. And now <clears throat> nobody spends any time in their formal living room or dining room and everybody spends time in the kitchen. So yeah. a lot. we are literally taking some of these beautiful old homes and, and just inverting them so that the kitchen becomes the heart of the home and we open up the kitchen to other spaces and to the outdoors because yeah. it was, the kitchen didn't have views. It didn't have daylight. So yeah. that's one part of our practice. Another part is new homes. Yep. And uh, those tend to be outside of our immediate geographic area because there's so little buildable land here. So more vacation homes, second homes, et cetera. And we love doing those just because there's some there's more design opportunities and it's actually more of a challenge in my mind when you, you don't yeah. have existing conditions to contend with. There's a lot of freedom. Too much. Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because there's a lot of freedom. And you're the, the person who has to put the boundaries around the story to right. actually allow, you know, otherwise... Yeah, you'd end up with a bathroom in the far corner of 40 acres and a kitchen in the other corner. You know, it just gets spread out until you put some boundaries and pull it in. Um, right. And it's a whole different mindset. It's a whole different, um, yeah, you use a whole lot of different thinking to, to do that. I love both renovations and, um, you know, new builds, but there's one head that does one and there's one head that seems to do the other. Um and the other thing I always think with it is, you know, you take, say, one of those homes you're talking about and um, you invert it, and in inverting it, you get to improve it beyond sight of what it was for living in. And everything feels better, even no matter how tricky it is, everything feels better. And the client's getting a journey of wow all the time. When you start with a blank piece of land, um, you first of all put your boundaries in and then your budget becomes one of those boundaries that's that you've got to say no to the client more often than the other way. Right, right. 
and they don't get to experience it before it's built. They only get to experience it in faith and in, and, and in trust. Whereas in a home, you know, you take down a major wall and suddenly the kitchen's now not that little box room in the back and it opens up to one more room. They go, it takes their breath away. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, it's an amazing, two different journeys as well different, in that sense. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. You know, the, what we try to do with these his beautiful estate homes is preserve the historic character that people love about them yep. and yet transform them at the same time. Are many of them protected or is there no protection orders? You could just knock them down and build again if you want uh, or no. Surprisingly, almost none of them have historic protection. Wow. Um, we're in a historic district, but the individual homes are rarely uh, protected from demolition. So it takes the client to have already fallen in love with the style yes. um, of the home, and then you get to uh, remaster it as such. Um, yeah. 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 I mean, we live in a remarkable uh, neighborhood called Chestnut Hill. Uh-huh. which is 10 miles from the main business district, but still within the city limits. And it's in some ways, a, it was a planned community from yeah, right. the very earliest of the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, we probably don't have time to get into that yeah. right now, but um, the architecture here and the variety of architecture, the variety of densities, um, the caliber of the architects that worked on projects here is is probably unlike almost any other community in the country. So that's another really interesting thing for people who haven't been. Um, I haven't been to Philadelphia or Chestnut Hill, but I will go um, for that reason, because it's just what you're saying, like um, the variety and the caliber, um, it, it's high. And so for that, you, you know, you're getting a history lesson but also with diversity, it's not just like, you know, there were three contractors and they built all the homes in the area. They were, you know, private plots. It's really cool. It, it also, you know, like I know guys who are architects in London and, um, you know, they might end up working in an area that was Georgian or, you know, Victorian or whatever. And pretty much most of the houses are of a similar sort of platform, um, whereas you've got all that diversity within the same thing. Mm. Right. And here, the architectural styles turned over about every 10 years. It was Again, your mother starting... running the show. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Well, that's another thing that's interesting, because back then, to build one of those big homes would have been, um, you know, substantially longer than it would take today, I imagine. It, it might have been a year, uh, two not, years of construction, or no? Yeah, Not a whole lot longer, because there were dozens and dozens of, of immigrant laborers. Right. So you could just throw labor at it. Yeah, most most of um, the, we have a unique type of stone here Mm -hmm. called Wissahick and Schist. It's quarried locally. And most all the stone buildings, residences and institutional buildings were built by Italian stonemasons from Southern Italy. Yeah, right. So you've also got great restaurants. Um, Those have moved on. But the, what a shame. the homes endure. <laughs> cool. So with um, that kind of split in your business, do you have sort of like 
two teams or are you kind of across, no. you know, what, how does it work? Like how do they interact? No. Uh, one team for each project and we keep the same people on board from inception to completion. Yeah, and nice. So it's the same team that would do a new build as a historic renovation addition. Uh-huh. Um, um, uh, the reason I was asking that was because if you had like new builds, say, um, you know, like, do they get caught in a genre too easily? But tell me about new builds and, you know, like what's in your surrounding countryside? What's, what's where people have their holiday homes and what kind of things are they looking for? What kind of, um, yeah, what kind of stuff? And what lights you up about it, I suppose, is the other thing, you know, what kind of projects? Um, obviously, there's, a, there's a, a beautiful bit of countryside in Philadelphia as well. Um, again, most, most of the new builds we're doing are two hours or more travel away. Uh, We've done new homes in Florida. That's a little more than two hours. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Upstate New York, uh, uh, Martha's Vineyard, which is off the coast of Massachusetts. So, so these are tend to be places where quite some distance away. Um, and they tend to be a little more contemporary than mm. what we're doing locally. Um, but people want the same basic layout, yeah. the same plan configuration. Yeah. It's just that the exterior envelope and roof lines and things and the amount of glazing tends mm-hmm. to be more contemporary on, mm-hmm. the, on the new homes. It's interesting, this thing like uh, uh, with COVID, um, you know, still like you were saying right at the start, you know, you've, you, you put a, a kitchen in the heart of a home and whether it's usually got access, it's accessible to the outside. It's, you know, it's this thing where it's a gathering place. It's right. become a status symbol. Um, it's an entertaining space, probably more than a dining room is even. Um, and it's got to have this indoor outdoor flow and, then we end up with a trend. I don't know whether it happened where you are, but here in Australia, probably uh, maybe t- well, 20 years ago, maybe it really started um, about the butler's pantry. And I'm yet to, you know, meet somebody with a butler. Um, <laughs> um, there are no butlers. Yeah, there are no butlers. I'm yet to meet somebody who's got enough staff to um, running their house that uh, they need a separate, you know, wing for them or any of these things. And, yeah, yet we're, there's this kind of thing which is I want this place, this this other place to leave all my appliances out, you know, and uh, I want these these other spaces. And you see trends, like you were saying, you know, with, with your um, – Every 10 years, maybe the trend of architecture changed, but we've got this developing trend like that. And with COVID, I've been going, what are the trends that we are seeing people ask for that have changed in their head that this is how a home needs to operate? And have you got any kind of number ones or? Uh, Yeah, I'll give you a couple. Mm. So number one is outdoor living space. Uh, no question, we're getting many requests like that from, from clients. Again, from Florida to Maine, regardless of the climate, people want to be able to eat and entertain outdoors. 
and usually under cover of roof. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because we do get a lot of rain. We're not in a dry, dry desert yeah. climate. Yeah. yeah. Coastal. Right. The second thing now, which is obvious, is people want to work from home. And they want to have individual offices because most of our clients have a working spouse. Yes. Yeah. Right. And so they want two home offices. And the third thing is a home gym. Yeah. Right. So, so what we've said is that what COVID has done is turn the house into something that requires not only that you eat and sleep there, but you work there you work out there, you, and you entertain there. Yes. So it assumed all these functions that used to be served outside of the home. And it's all being brought in and collected so people don't have to leave their house. Yeah, it, it's going to be, you know, I, I, with, I'm here in Australia and I talk to people around the world and pretty much what you've said is pretty much what everybody's experiencing. And with it, it's almost like we're creating our own little, you know, village piece of our own own space. Yeah. Um, yet, and what the joke of it is, is I always say to people, well, you know, they say, oh, my house won't do this or it doesn't do this or I need this because, you know, new home because of this. And um, I go, well, your house was never designed to be your offices, right. your, you know, your, your gym area and all these things. So that was never your house, was never that was never even conceived at the point of when this was drawn. Um, right. So we're going to end up with this and then, and probably goodness knows when, I don't know how long, but maybe it's a 10 year cycle or a 20 year cycle. Uh, we're going to go, you know, there's going to be people that are going to be doing gym conversions to whatever another fad is. The other thing we're right. seeing is um, in bathroom spaces is, you know, we want steam showers. We want a sauna. We want, mm. Um, more health and wellness kind of um, elements put in. And that, I figure, is mainly off the back of COVID because there isn't necessarily anywhere that they've been going and getting that, maybe other than a gym or a health spa. Uh, But, yeah, they're asking for that as well a lot. Right. So we're seeing a little bit of that. But, Adrian, I'll I'll tell you what the other main major trend is that started pre-COVID and continues is uh, accessible or dwelling units. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, ADUs um, or granny flats. ADUs, or, yeah. And uh, multi-generational living, I guess is the other buzzword for yeah. it. So we just yeah. finished a, a very modest project for a, a friend of mine. Uh, he and his wife have a modest home in the suburbs. They have two kids who are out of the house and one's married, the other one's in graduate school. And his dad was living alone in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and they wanted to bring him up and live with them. So we designed a, an apartment, in essence, as an addition off of their house um, for his dad. It has an accessible bathroom. It has a bedroom. It has a very small kitchenette and a little tiny sitting area. And it's connected to the house, but he has his own separate door. So yeah. he can live independently there, and yet he can also have supper with them. Um, they can take care of him when he's no longer able to care for himself. And so that's another trend that we're seeing accelerating. And I, I said, um, 
except the accessible dwelling units. I meant accessory dwelling units. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Um, uh, we're seeing a similar trend, and part of it is is urban infill. Um, part of it is that uh, there's the opportunity for Airbnb being um, a part of your property. You know, you're better mm -hmm. leveraging your land, especially with younger people. They're likely to do it for that. But we're certainly seeing it in the age thing. And, and interestingly, you know, like say you've got a, a family of, you know, um, two kids or whatever, where we've got certain sizes you're allowed to build obviously there's codes and everything else but if they can build a two-bedroom one um and the kids means the kids can leave home but they go to the yard um and it gives the kids another you know while they're studying and spending money on education another chance to um i suppose they've added value to their home but they've um also added time and and lower cost to their children which gives their children a chance to get into the real estate market later on easier you know those kind of things are um we're seeing that a fair bit as well you know for both reasons and then aging in place you know um mm -hmm. even we've done a couple where it's for um aged care an aged carer sorry a carer for them as they want to age in place mm -hmm. um you know so we've got projects where with the the owner of the property wants to age in place and so they're setting it up now even though they might only be in their 40s they're setting it up now so that that will always be an option right there the zoning codes here are by and large prohibit adus but that is starting to change right right we've right. got just different you know different zoning on different things for it but yeah it's interesting and and, and all certainly from a from a um City point of view, you know, the same infrastructure can carry, um, you know, the, the additional load, I suppose, um, of that, and it keeps the properties as larger properties intact. Mm. Um, some of your hobbies that uh, I know you love to cycle. Um, so with these, with, with some of your hobbies, tell me about some of those. I want to find out where they, where the links are um to just your personality and also your um business sort of thing you know like how you do how they kind of link together you know whether they're just a total escape or whether there's actually something that clicks there that one runs the other i may need you to help me discover what those links are um, <laughs> we'll see what we can find so you know one of the things that i'm i guess i'm proud of is that <laughs> Since I started my own firm, I have tried to maintain a relative balance between various aspects of my life, personal relationships, uh, bringing up our kids, work, and athletics and activities. Um, so I worked at Venturi Scott Brown for five years before I started my own practice, and we were, we were working around the clock. Uh, and we didn't mind doing it, um, but our daughter was born during that period, and you know, then our second child was born right when I left, and I had vowed that when I had my own business, I really wasn't going to be on the downhill side of that work-life balance. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I've, I've always been very physically active as, as a squash player as a soccer player 
as a skier, um, a runner, and running turned into cycling when my doctor told me that the pounding was taking <laughs> its toll. do it for too much longer. Yeah. Uh, so for me, the physical exercise is the, the solo stuff like cycling is sort of an escape. I mean, it's, it's time when I clear my head and just enjoy being outdoors. Uh, but the, some of the other stuff, the soccer, the squash, uh, the coaching, I did a lot of youth sports coaching. Yeah. Um, that was social very much so because all, you know, we're hanging out with all the parents or we've got a large group of squash players that meet, you know, a couple times a week. And what's social when you have your own business can often become marketing. Yeah, for sure. True. True. Right. Because so, birds of a feather flock together kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah. while I don't you know, actively seek out work, I don't bring, I don't talk about business when I'm biking with some buddies or playing squash with some friends, but it has definitely led to opportunities mm-hmm. because that, they're part of my network. Mm-hmm. And, and I, have a, I imagine as well, you know, like um, I certainly know with my lawyer and, you know, different people like that, that I do social things with them. They're, they're my friends. That They became right. my friends. And then we went, well, why wouldn't we use them in our business? You know, that's um, that, that they're good for us. We're good for them, you know. Yeah. And, you know, there's that old axiom, don't don't work for your friends if you want to keep them. Um, But somehow I've been able to navigate that with ease. And and we've done projects for friends and they remain friends. In fact, I'm having dinner tonight with one of them that we've done a couple projects for and one of my squash and biking buddies. And we're still really close. So, um, you know, it's great if you can if you can balance all that. I think. You know, like it is, that's actually an absolute skill <clears throat> because um, at times there will always be like in any project or something, there'd be misunderstanding or friction or whatever, but that's the absolute skill of being able to um, hear the other person's point of view and be able to understand them um, and then move forward with it, you know, without, I've certainly done similar, like lots of projects for friends and I've never once gone um I shouldn't uh, I shouldn't work with these people but I've, I've yeah it's thoughts crossed my mind um but you know out of every job I've done if anything the relationships always deepened it's, mm-hmm. um, it's become deeper relationship not not a lesser relationship we've learned more about each other that we wouldn't have just learned socially um so I love that about it I love that yeah. about it. but it does take I've had the, yeah I think I've had similar experience as you but it it is, definitely takes a certain personality to to yeah. pull that off yeah yeah um, um tell me about skiing because I'm a mad skier uh, I love skiing uh, I used to actually live in um Steamboat Springs um oh. yeah and I've skied Thank Europe you. and I've skied you know New Zealand um, funnily enough, I live in Australia, I'm a Kiwi, but I live in Australia and I've not skied, um, Australia, um, but I've skied America a lot. Um, so tell me, tell me some of those amazing ski spots that you like to go to. Um, and then we've, I've got a little question that will follow that. Okay. So, uh, there's really one ski spot 
that is special to me, and that's Alta in Utah. Take me there. (laughs) Okay. And uh, my dad started skiing at Alta many, many years ago with some of his buddies. And when his buddies were too old or too infirm to keep him company, he invited me. I had been skiing. I learned how to ski in high school, and then I stopped skiing for 15 years. Uh, And as I got to be somewhere around 40, my dad invited me to join him at his favorite place, which is Alta, where he had gone with his his buddies for one ski trip a year, for, for year in and year out. And we started that family tradition, and then my brother and sister joined in, and then our, as our kids became old enough, they started joining us. And so every year, forever, we would take a four-day weekend and ski at Alta. That's where our kids learned to ski, um, and they're they're amazing skiers. Our daughter became a ski instructor in uh-huh. Aspen for a year. Our son became a ski patroller at Park City for a couple of years yeah. after college. Um, and my dad skied up until he was 87. Wow. Uh, I love that. Uh, and he thinks he's going skiing this year, just after his 90th birthday. Um, we're not so sure that he really could handle it, but we're hoping against hope that um, we'll have one more, one more year with him at Alta, and we'll have three, three generations on the slopes at one time. That would be sensational. How old's your dad? He just turned 90. Right. So my dad's 93. So, um, yeah, similar sort of age group. My God, my dad, you wouldn't put him anywhere near skis, but he never learned to ski anyway. But um, it's an interesting thing that, isn't it? Like, it would be sensational to get all those three generations there. My my experience of Alta was I was uh, in, um, uh, you know, um, Salt Lake City and... There, there was a group of us that had gone there for work. We were we were there to do a job, um, not in the architectural field, but in the clothing design field. So they have a mm. a big outdoors show every year there. And um, anyway, um, I wanted to skive off and go skiing, so I sort of like wrangled a couple of the others and said, "Hey, come on, let's go. Let's just take a day out and go skiing." And they're like, oh, "I don't know that we should." I'm like, "Hey, it's all corporate. We'll be fine. Don't worry about a thing." Um, and we went and they said well we only snowboard and i'm mm. like oh okay um so we're driving up and like is it snowbird is the one before altar yeah yes. so we're, we're driving past snowbird uh, and i'm i see i have got no idea where i'm going i knew i was headed towards snowbird and I, I i think to myself um where i'm heading is like uh you know snowbird and i see there's a sign and it says altar and i just went oh I've heard of this place. It was like the <laughs> Holy Grail. And mm-hmm. um, we drive up and uh, we're, we're driving up the hill and I'm like, the, and they sort of said to me, well, didn't you say we were going to go to Snowbird? And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. But we're going to go to Alta. We're going to go to Alta. And we pull up at Alta and it says, there's a big sign. I don't know if it's still there, but it says Alta is for skiers. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> and I went, I'm home. What about you guys? <laughs> so... I drove back down the hill or across to, to Snowbird mm-hmm. and I, I had my first day of snowboarding and mm-hmm. it wasn't quite my last, but very close. The next day they went to work and I drove back to Alta and skied. Oh, 
<laughs> Luckily, I was I was the boss enough that I could um could kind of get away with that. But yeah, I just went on my own and um, skied Alta, and then I've skied it a couple of times since. And again, I, yeah, I, it's a magical story for me, mainly because I had to learn to snowboard in a day mm-hmm. which just hurt like hell. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, right. and and you know, out there in Utah, there's so many great spaces to ski. There's some beautiful stuff. Right. I, right. I love the ski architecture as well. I love the architecture of the mm-hmm. mountain spaces. It, um, yeah. I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to open up an office somewhere in Colorado or Utah. <laughs> I know a few people there. I can give you some names. Yeah, just click collab, okay. <laughs> collab with them. I'm like right. you. I go, you know, having an office out there would just be, it would force you to be there for the winter. there's any parallel between architecture and skiing i mean to me there's just a profound beauty to doing it well Mm -hmm. but it's also extremely technical yeah yeah right so you have to you have to master the technical part of it to so that it looks effortless yeah, without a doubt, and that that would be a great parallel. The, the the similar parallel would exist between skiing and surfing, and it's the same, you know, with with architecture or any great design. Is it's it's way harder than it looks, but when it's done beautifully, you know, a couple of a couple of curves on a wave or a couple of curves on the mountain just sort of like spill out in front or behind you, and you kind of go, yeah, it's it. it I think. Um, interestingly it's about flow and Mm -hmm. um, you know you've got to get in one with the environment to do it and great architecture is formed when you're in one with the environment as well Um, and the client you know getting in that one zone that that forms it Um, Mm -hmm. you know something that um, that we're we're seeing and, and I'd be interested if you've got any of this experience with any commercial that you've done is we've got um but, you know, sort of we, we do very little commercial. In fact, we only do commercial for clients who we have designed their homes. So we'll have a client and they go, well, we've got a business and will you design us a building for it or will you design this or whatever for us? But interestingly, um, the, you know, commercial spaces have, have spread out because of COVID. Um, mm-hmm. But also the wellness space in there, like we've um, got a job that we're doing for a client currently where we've got an oxygen room, we've got a, um, a flow room, so a, mm-hmm. a separate thinking space. Um, the oxygen room, you can actually sit in there with your laptops and do stuff. We've got mm-hmm. um, walls that will, you know, those uh, those things where you've got to touch the different light panels and and it's at, at speed it's cognitive stuff mm. we've got things like that in the hallways going in all these kind of things that make it kind of a play space as well as a workspace and okay. they need to be in the same space together they can't do this this the function of this office from home and so the owner was saying to me you know we have to make this space so special that uh we can attract staff with it and mm-hmm. so we can give them things they couldn't have at home you know like a hundred thousand dollar oxygen room things like that um so just a difference in thinking there as well that's changed with how how can you attract the right staff or make it 
you know, they could do another kind of job um, rather than just money. How do you create that and culture? How do you create the environment that um, drags them towards you and uh, or, or make them relocate as well and want to leave their home? Right. Right. So, um, and I don't know whether you're seeing that kind of thing, but the other um, thing we're seeing with that, and the, you know, when you're saying about two offices, is mm-hmm. is almost uh, the reason for two is is you know often we're asked for they don't use these words exactly, but a daydreaming space. Yeah, we're not doing that much commercial right now either. That that's the one part of the market that's really depressed here at the moment. But um, so we haven't seen that, but the the sort of away space in a, in a residence is uh, something we're, we're hearing more in, about and providing. It's interesting. You know, we, we get asked a lot for the fire pit as well. Mm-hmm. And um, I was doing a, a talk recently and uh, I finished it off with um, the fire pit and the practice of fire gazing. And um, I, I, it was like one of those go out on a limb here and throw something like that in at the end. And uh, it brought a lot of comment, a lot, a lot of comment. Mm. People saying to me, how can you fire gaze if you don't have a fireplace? And I'm like, with candles, you know, like there's there's methods mm. for these things. And they're like, oh, you know, and um, again, reconnecting, you know, well, like we were saying with the COVID thing, reconnecting with nature. Yeah, and those are the, right. those are the base elements of nature. So um, people looking to do that. We were saying about the the special kind of stone, and I missed the name of it. Um, that's a lot in your area. What sort of like materiality wise uh, are you seeing happening? In I, I get when it's historic restoration stuff, but outside of that, what's what's happening in your marketplace with material? Uh. Well, we try to use this stone. It's called Wissahickon Schist. Wissahickon is a local creek. It's a yeah. Native American name. Uh, the schist is it's a mica stone, and what's really it's a dark gray stone with some hints of light gray and, and tan. But what's unique about it is it has a lot of mica in it, so, so it, it shimmers and sparkles. Beautiful. Uh, so. When the budget allows, we try to use that even on new builds. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it, it anchors the project to the place. Yeah, I like that. The local stone, it's not really found too many other places. And so when you see that stone, you know that it's of, of that locale, of that um, place. And so that's important to us to sort of ground the buildings in their environment and in their context. Um, the other trends we're seeing, of course, is this is nothing unique, but a move away from natural wood into composite and synthetic materials, uh, just for maintenance reasons. Yeah. yeah. And because the composite materials have become a lot better and more readily available, uh, with different, different shapes and sizes, um, we still use natural wood, though. We still love it as a material. Um, you know, so again, it's just that idea that our new homes, our more contemporary homes, just tend to have pretty simple palettes of wood and stone and glass. And nice. that that is indicative of probably most modern architecture. <laughs> right? As you say, not necessarily totally unique, but it's how you no. mix it. So it I, I, I used to train innovation, and we used to say, you know, like, all the elements are there, 
if you want to bake a cake, you know, what do we need? Eggs, butter, you know, flour, um, salt, you know, sugar, um, maybe some flavoring. Um, but if I just give you the cake, if you give you the elements, it doesn't mean that you get the cake. And right. each time as a, as a design person, you rewrite the recipe. That you might still only have the same elements, but you rewrite that mm-hmm. recipe and out of that recipe, you still bake a cake, but it's a different cake each time. Right. Good analogy. Yeah. I always think of it when I'm yeah. talking to people and they go, yeah, and we really want these elements. And you go, yeah, okay, cool. And, and, and because it's no surprise. <laughs> um, and right. then it's like, but how do we make them your elements um, and which piece exactly. of them you attach to? And that's the empathetic journey of it. Mm. Um, for the future, when you're looking forward into the future, um, what do you see sort of that you guys were are planning on doing in the next 10 years? Like what sort of, what, what's uh, other than skiing an altar with your dad, um, <laughs> <laughs> which I think, by the way, would be my, it'd be high on my bucket list, you know, to do something like that. Um, and then, you know, the, those other like sports and things, what do you see for the next 10 years for, for what you're going to do? Uh, so stay healthy. Um, mentally and physically fit. Uh, I've, I've actually in the last eight years had uh, cancer twice and I'm, I'm fully recovered, but there's always that slim possibility of a recurrence. So for me, you know, health and is really become extra important having, you know, really strong relationships with my immediate family, friends, and our kids as they grow into young adults, that's that's probably number one on the list. Uh, number two would be physically fit. And number three is, is uh, you know, maintaining an active pra- practice and growing it and continuing to learn. Okay. And um, eventually, you know, in a 10-year span, I'm, I'm looking to, uh, you know, build, create a legacy firm that I can turn over to my staff. Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. I really love that. So I've got one last question, Jeff. Yeah. Uh, we are it, it, tomorrow. You're told that you can do one more project. This is it. One more project. You can't do any more after that. You can't even use the word architecture after that. This is it. So what would you choose to do? So that legacy piece has to happen tomorrow. Starts tomorrow. tomorrow. Yeah. What would you uh, choose would be that project that would be the last one that you hung your hat on? Okay. So I will just say the first thing that popped into my head uh, was I would do a large um, housing project for uh, Habitat for Humanity. Wow. And why? Why? Well, we did a large one when I, when I first started my office. We did over a dozen homes um, in in North Philadelphia, which is one of the most impoverished urban areas you've ever seen. Uh, And it was just, it was so uh, reward, spiritually rewarding Mm -hmm. to do something to help, to use architecture to help others. Um, And and that's lost in all these high-end custom residential things we do. And so if I had only one thing left to do, I think I would want to do something to 
help help others through through the design and technical skills that I've acquired over the years. It's a beautiful answer. I really do think it's a fantastic answer. You know, that ability to give en masse as opposed to give, you know, more individually. Um, right. And everybody should experience living in great design, um, which is thoughtful and careful and, you know, um, it's empathetic design. Beautiful answer, man. Um, Thanks. I'm going to Thanks post for asking. Your, yeah, I'm going to post all your. You better put it on the job board. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to um, post all your socials. I'm looking forward to okay. how you go with your dad and Alter. We'll post all your socials and stuff, and you know we'll put this up on the net pretty soon. Thank you again for making the time. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks, Adrian. It's it's been a great session, and I hope this is of some value to your many listeners. Me too. Cheers, man. <laughs> Cheers. Richard's Magic Arrows is brought to you by the Architect Marketing Institute. Clean, simple, sugar-free magic arrows that hit the mark for fast results. Let's fire a magic arrow into this week's problem. Now, I know feed pressure is one of the biggest things facing designers. It doesn't matter what level you're at. There is no one golden bullet for it. Uh, If it was, it was probably select the right type of clients. But if you're in a situation where you're being pressured on fees, I'm going to give you a way of dealing with it. And it's by asking, say, three questions. And this is called takeaway selling. So this is where you kind of offer something up and then you take it away and see if they follow you. It's almost like imagine if you had some hot chocolate cookies and you had a plate full of them. You put them in front of someone and then they went to reach out and then you, you pulled it away and you see if they get up and follow you. It's that type of thing. So this is called takeaway selling. So the first question you ask, you say, well, why don't you just leave the situation as it is? Why, why make the change? That's an unusual thing for a designer to say. Well, why not just leave it as it is? And see how they answer. And then you might say, why did you want to speak to me? Why did you not get someone else? And see if they follow you. See if they answer properly. And the third question would be, well, why not do it later? Now, by asking these negative questions, you're going to get a lot more information out of someone than by trying to convince them to do it. Because by pulling the plate of hot cookies away, they're either going to react or they're not. And if they do react and give you answers and explain why it's important, then what they're doing is telling you how important something is. Now, while these magic arrows are great for fast results, when you're ready to run better quality projects from clients who value great design and are prepared to pay great fees, I've got a special training just for you. Go to archmarketing.org forward slash talk design. Take your magic arrow and fire at will.